Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. After months and months of anticipation, fight night finally arrived. It happened on the evening of Wednesday, August 23rd in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The elephant in the room was actually not in the room, as the case may be. The former president, Donald Trump, was sitting down with Tucker Carlson to record a softball interview at the same time that his eight nearest polling competitors were taking the stage to debate one another. Those of us in the chattering class, those of us who follow these things closely, we've been anticipating this for months and months and months now. Not sure if it lived up to the hype. There were some fun moments for sure. I think as a sheer entertainment proposition, it surpassed my expectations, actually. There were more kind of popcorn, kind of laugh-out-loud moments than I had anticipated. The million-dollar question, which we will, we will return to, is whether or not this means anything. Because, again, the elephant was not in the room. He is actually dominating the headlines the day after the debate because of his fourth arraignment in Fulton County, Georgia, turning himself in there to Fonnie Wilson, the Fulton County, Georgia district attorney. So we will come back to that. First, a quick word about Fox News. Fox News hosted this debate. I can't say that I think Fox did a particularly good job with this debate. Brett Bayer and Martha McCallum are, are veteran moderators. I think Brett Bayer is actually very good at this. He's had a number of very good debates that he has moderated over the years. This was not one of them. There were any number of moments throughout the course of this debate where the moderators clearly had little to no interest in actually moderating and doing their job and keeping the candidates focused on the issues and enforcing the 30, 60, 90 second and so forth rules for responses, rebuttals, statements, all of that. There was that one point, you will recall, where Brett Bayer even physically turned around to the audience when they started booing so much and essentially said, the more you boo, the less time we have to ask questions of the candidates. So not a good look from the moderator's perspective, to say nothing, of course, of the nature of the topics and questions that were discussed themselves. It got off to a great start. I mean, it was a long-winded opening question, but they had the cutaway to Oliver Anthony's new hit song, Rich Men North of Richmond, the cultural sensation that has really become a touchstone in our roiling cold civil war. That was all excellent. And then the second question, if I recall, they did a cutaway to YAF, Young America's Foundation, a venerable conservative organization. I speak for them myself sometimes. And they plucked a student from YAF to ask a question. And I was expecting kind of a hot button issue, Hunter Biden, Ukraine, corruption, China, whatever. And the question was about climate change. Like, <laughs> like 15, 20 minutes into a Republican, the first Republican debate, we're talking about climate change? And then well towards the end of the debate, of course, there was also, 
UFOs, for God's sake, were brought up among the candidates. UFOs. We're talking about Roswell, New Mexico, and Area 51. <laughs> and we're not talking about, oh, I don't know, let's see. We're not talking about the Black Lives Matter and Tifa riots of 2020. How will you enforce law and order in the streets? We're not talking about Hunter and Joe Biden family corruption. We're not talking about Joe Biden's Hurricane Katrina moment in Maui, Hawaii, this horrific, horrific wildfire where the death toll might ultimately surpass over a thousand people, one third of a 9-11, government incompetence on every level. Not even addressing that. What about the Democrats' current threats to try to add Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, admit them as U.S. states to pack the Supreme Court, abolish the Electoral College, all of these various structural ways they are trying to destroy the Constitution and ultimately the American way of life. N none of that really came up. Sure, they touched on some of the hot issues, abortion, immigration. Yeah, I mean, some of these issues came up. I'm not, I don't want to exaggerate here. But I really do not think the moderation and direction of this debate was particularly good. And I think that that really just must be said. Hopefully that this improves the next few times that these candidates do take the debate stage. So going into the debate, which Donald Trump, less than a week before the debate, announced that he was not going to attend. He was going to do this Bedminster, New Jersey shtick with Tucker Carlson, apparently just a total softball interview. Haven't fully watched it yet. Not sure if I will. But going into that, after Trump announced that he was not going to be there, the attention immediately shifted to the obvious and clear number two candidate in this race, who is the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. And the question, of course, was, what will DeSantis do? Will he come out there? Will he answer the questions about the fact that his campaign clearly has not gone off to the start that many of us expected and or hoped that it would? Would he answer questions from the donor class? Would he answer questions from supporters? Would he reassure donors and the median voter in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina alike? What would his tone be? Would it be defiant? Would it be angry? Would it be relatable, as the Trump folks like to mock him for allegedly not being? Ron DeSantis had a good performance. I'm using the word good deliberately. I'm not saying it was exceptional. I'm not saying it was dominant. It was good. He had any number of questions where I thought he answered quite well. He had a very, very good answer on immigration, the border, and the cartels, talking about the possibility of actually taking military action if need be, kind of an Emilio Zapata-style cross-border incursion to take out the cartels, as I have called for in the past in my column. I was happy to see DeSantis go there. It's, a, it's an icky thing to talk about, but it, it really must be addressed. He had an excellent answer on, on crime and Soros prosecutors. They were the one time that crime, one of the most important topics in America, the only time that crime came up in this poorly moderated debate, I was literally shouting at the TV. I'm like, Ron, Ron, get in there. Talk about the Soros prosecutors. And you know, sure enough, a few, a few minutes later, he finally got there, talked about the fact that he was the only one up there who has removed two Soros-funded prosecutors, which he has done most recently in the Orlando area, just 
very recently, and then last year, the DA was Warren in the Tampa Bay area. And overall, the the, the difference in tone as Marina Medvin, the criminal defense attorney who's handling a lot of January 6th clients, as she pointed out on Twitter, I thought this was, this was a very astute point, a lot of the other candidates were talking about, as your president, I will do this. When I am president, I will do this. Or if they're less confident, if I am president, I will do this. While a lot of the candidates were, were doing that, were phrasing their talking points like that, DeSantis was more about, well, here's what I've done. It, it was kind of a more subtle point that he was making, I think, implicitly. Between the rest of you are talking about what I will do, well, here is what I have done in my time transforming the nation's third largest state from the one-time iconic swing state of hanging chads and Tallahassee recounts George W. Bush Al Gore into a bastion of conservatism. So he had his moments. His, his answer on the military joining there after 9-11 as well, I thought that was, was quite good. I was shocked that no one came after Ron DeSantis. I, I, I genuinely cannot think of a single time that another candidate up there actually took a shot at him, which is really staggering because a lot of these other candidates over the course of their time on the campaign trails have taken shots at them. Vivek Ramaswamy, we'll get to him, he has taken more shots at DeSantis than anyone. In fact, if you believe the reporting from ABC News, which came out earlier this week, and I certainly do believe it, it seems that Vivek Ramaswamy's entire campaign is trying to nuke, to take out Ron DeSantis, as a fullback would do for the tailback, the tailback being Donald Trump. Ramaswamy is emphatically pro-Trump. We'll, we'll get to Ramaswamy in a little bit. But I was shocked that Vivek, who was standing right next to DeSantis in the middle of that debate stage, did not, for a moment, actually take a swing the man who was standing on his right to the viewing audience's left. Similarly, others, such as Mike Pence, Chris Christie, and Nikki Haley, they, they've all taken shots at DeSantis over various things as well, especially over his prosecution of his fight with the Walt Disney Company pertaining to their sexualization of children, their outspoken opposition to the parental rights and education law, which Florida passed last year pertaining to uh, not sexualizing children in, in public school. So I, I was really expecting DeSantis to have to get his hands dirty and fight, which frankly I was hoping for. I was hoping that he would show some more flashes of this bare knuckles brawler, which many Floridians saw during the heyday of the COVID pandemic, when it seemed like basically every day ending in why. He was getting into lots of voluble, violent at times, almost kind of fisticuffs with a very hostile media who opposed each and every one of his policies pertaining to mask mandates, vaccine mandates, lockdowns, forced business closures, and all of that. So that was probably my number one biggest surprise of the evening, was that no one actually came at Ron DeSantis Hard to say why that was. I mean, it's possible they just didn't want to give him more airtime because the rules that Fox had was that if you took a shot at someone, then you have had, I believe, was 30 seconds to offer a response. So maybe they didn't want to just, they, they simply just didn't want him to have more time talking. They selfishly perhaps wanted to kind of hoover up more time for themselves. That certainly seems to be the strategy of 
Mike Pence and Vivek, who were the two leaders as far as most time spent talking. I have to tell you, if you had told me before that debate started that two of the top three people who would be speaking for the longest time based on the actual stopwatch time tracker, if you had told me ahead of time that two of the top three would be Mike Pence and Chris Christie, I, I would have I laughed at you. Uh, Mike Pence, for what it's worth, I, 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 he, he's a veteran at this. I mean, he's been doing this for a very long time. The guy was a, he was a, a, a Republican study committee stalwart in the House of Representatives. He was the governor of Indiana, vice president. He just has a lot of debating experience. Now, he bores me to death. It, it is difficult to watch Mike Pence ramble on without having some sleep-inducing moments and without wanting to kind of take a nap and curl up into a fetal position. The guy just has that tone of voice. He is just not the most exciting person, nor is he my cup of tea on many of the substance, on many of the public policy issues. He, in many ways, encapsulates the the failed BoomerCon consensus that we on the show like to rail against frequently. I think that Mike Pence's thoughts on the Russia-Ukraine conflict as, as but one example are, are just totally and wildly out of touch with the Republican base. But, but, but he, he did a very good job of interjecting himself into the conversation and really just trying to get the cameras honed on him, which is what Mike Pence needed to do because his campaign doesn't seem to be doing a whole lot other than that. He clearly had to generate some, some, some free PR, some free media, and I think he did so. S speaking of Ukraine, when, when the conversation got to that. It was it was a good question that the moderators asked. They basically said who here would oppose or would potentially oppose continued US aid, congressional aid packages to the Ukraine war effort. And I, I have to say that I was I was pretty surprised that Vivek Ramaswamy was the only person whose hand shot immediately up. Now DeSantis interjected, which I wish he would have done more often, I wish he would have put himself in the middle of the conversation more often, but he did interject a little bit to say, he, he kind of gave somewhat of a half measure. He basically said, oh, I would lean on our European allies to pick up the slack, and if they don't do so, then we're out, which is correct. That is completely correct. I've, you know, from an America, an American national interest perspective, as we've said over and over again, it is absolutely imperative that Western and Central European powers do pick up the slack when it comes to the war between Russia and Ukraine so that America can better focus its resources on what is the actual major threat to America, primarily the Chinese Communist Party regime. But I was disappointed still that DeSantis didn't take that opportunity to more definitively kind of ca cast an unambiguous hand-raising vote to side with the Republican base on this issue. The polling at this point is fairly clear that Republicans are deeply skeptical, borderline outright opposed to just further congressional sums of money being allotted to this stalemate, this boondoggle, as we have been calling it for well over a year now on this show. So I, I thought that that was a bit of a missed opportunity for Ron DeSantis. As far as some of the other candidates in the race, again, I'm going to get back to Vivek Ramaswamy. I actually thought Nikki Haley did well. And Nikki Haley is, again, is not my cup of tea for many of the reasons that Mike Pence is not my cup of tea. I think that she is a, a throwback to a different style of Republican, a, a Bush-era neoconservative neo at her core. 
uh, even her answer on abortion was, was frankly not particularly inspiring. It was kind of this mealy-mouthed, oh, we don't have the votes, you know, compassion for the woman. And obviously, this is a difficult issue and compassion is always called for. But, you know, if you're trying to win a Republican presidential primary, I thought that answer was was uninspiring. But she definitely carried her herself well. I mean, she was better spoken, frankly, than I thought she would be. She has a tendency in some of her media interviews to talk a little a little slowly. She kind of picked up the pace a little bit there. And I thought that she fended off Vivek Ramaswamy quite well. I am much closer to Vivek's position than Nikki's position when it comes to the Ukraine conflict. But the, the point that Nikki Haley was making, which is that this guy is a, you know, is a total amateur and doesn't know what the hell he's talking about, She's not wrong about that. I mean, two things can be true at once. Vivek can be right about the Ukraine war, all else equal, and Nikki Haley can be correct that Vivek Ramaswamy is a total fraud who has had his chat GBT talking points put into his computer program brain, and that he's just reciting them on the, on the spot there. So I, I thought Nikki Haley honestly emerged from this in, in slightly better position then she came in before it. Ditto Chris Christie. Uh, he, he wasn't amazing. You know, this kind of is Chris Christie's format. In some ways, Chris Christie was kind of Donald Trump before he was Donald Trump. He was the swashbuckling, swaggering New Jersey governor who, uh, you know, his, his, his record in New Jersey is mixed at best, I would say. Uh, which, by the way, another thing I have to pick with, with the Fox moderators they they gave Christie, if I recall, the second question after Ron DeSantis in the opening minutes of the debate when you have the audience's attention totally captivated. You have, you, you have a captured audience. They are listening to every word. And the second question went to Chris Christie, who's not even campaigning in Iowa. He's making a set, effectively a kamikaze play for New Hampshire, the, the second state. Not that he really has a chance in hell at New Hampshire either. And not only did the moderators give Chris Christie the, the second question, but it was, it was about economics, pushing back against Bidenomics and all that, and Christie's talking about his record. And it was and Brett Bayer kind of dug up some facts about New Jersey's like credit rating and stuff while he was governor. I mean, for God's sake, people, Chris Christie has not been governor of New Jersey for years. I, why are we wasting our time talking about this, let alone towards the front? I mean, just a total joke. But again, this is Christie's natural setting. The fact that he was able to kind of hoover up the third most speaking time of all the candidates. I think he he, he did himself some favors there. Again, he's a totally irrelevant figure. It's unclear at best why he is in this race other than to score some points against against Trump, but he didn't do him, uh, he didn't do himself any harm. That, that, that is for sure. One person in this race who I, I do think definitely did not do himself any favors last night was Tim Scott, who's maybe the only candidate other than the absolute joke of the field, Asa Hutchinson. Maybe other than Asa, Tim Scott's the only candidate who I thought was genuinely bad last night. And, you know, I've never met Tim Scott. I, I, I suspect he's, a nice man. I, I I have any number of substantive issues with Tim Scott. One of which was his his absolutely shameful nuking, as we've mentioned on the show before. It's absolutely shameful nuking of a U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit judicial nominee by the name of Ryan Bounds, who would have been an outstanding jurist on a very important left leaning court. Trump nominated him, and Tim Scott working unfortunately, hand in glove with Marco Rubio, Scott actually convinced Rubio to join his crusade here, was able to sink Bounds' judicial nomination because of some 
writings that Ryan Bounds wrote when he was an undergraduate college student at Stanford University that Tim Scott deemed insufficiently good or woke, whatever you want to call it, on, on race. Apparently, Ryan Bounds was like a vociferous critic of affirmative action and various other stuff in college. And I guess Tim Scott thought that he was therefore a racist and unfit for a judicial nomination. I, I mean, that that act in and of itself, which has not gotten nearly enough attention, to me, given the stakes of judicial nominations, that act is singularly disqualifying. Especially, to, especially kind of the optics of taking this ridiculous faux moral high ground of calling people racist. It, just awful. I, I thought that was absolutely shameful of, of Tim Scott. Tim Scott also, during the Black Lives Matter and Tifa riots of 2020, was playing it way too cozy with the left when it, when it came to so-called police reform. Kind of, uh, There were all these bipartisan talks about possibly ending qualified immunity for police officers. Tim Scott was the leader of that charge. So I, I have any number of substantive gripes with him, notwithstanding the fact that I'm sure he's a decent person. Uh, again, I've never met him. But, but he was just painfully boring last night. I mean, painfully boring. And, you know, Mike Pence is boring, but he, he, he still speaks at a decent enough clip his rhetoric is such that the camera at least stays on him and you want to hear how he ends his sentence. T Tim Scott was speaking fairly slowly. The tone was kind of just off for a national debate stage. I don't think he made any particularly good points. And, and frankly, there is some element of hypocrisy here to be said about this guy who talks on and on about his biography, how he's the embodiment of the American dream. There's some, there's some element of hypocrisy here to the fact that, dude, you are a 57-year-old career politician. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that, I, I'm not entirely sure that anyone who is a 57-year-old career politician, who, by the way, happens to be a bachelor who does not have a wife to come home to, to a night, I, I'm not sure that is many people's, uh, shall we say, vision for what they think of their American dream. So I don't think Tim Scott did himself any favors there last night. The two absolute you know, jokers in the race, Doug Burgum and, and Asa Hutchinson. Uh, we're, we're not talking here about those who didn't even qualify for the debate stage, like Francis Suarez, the Hillary Clinton, Andrew Gillum supporting rainbow flag worshiping mayor of Miami, Florida, who God knows why he is still in this race. Uh, Larry Elder, who is, is a good dude. Larry's a Los Angeles-based radio host, syndicated columnist. I happen to like Larry a lot. I have no idea why he is doing this, why he is running for president. So holding them aside, the two jokers on the stage last night, Doug Burgum and Asa Hutchinson, I, I thought Doug Burgum actually came across better than I expected. Um, he's, he's a well-spoken guy. I mean, which you would expect from someone who has made billions of dollars. The guy's literally a billionaire from his software business. He's well-spoken. I, I kind of liked the whole take out the Constitution shtick. It was a little bit of a throwback to a, to a bygone era of sorts. You know, totally reasonable. I mean, nothing edgy. I mean, he's not an edgy guy, but he's the governor of a very red state. They've passed some strong conservative legislation in North Dakota, including some strong pro-life legislation. So I, I have no particular issue with with Doug Burgum being on the debate stage. He's, he's, he's a conservative dude, and he comes across fairly telegenic. Uh, Asa Hutchinson, on the other hand, I mean, why are you still in this race? I, first of all, how did you qualify for this race? I mean, how did you actually meet the number of unique donors and hit the actual polls to even get on that debate stage? So Doug Burgum's, his little trick in order to qualify for this debate was he he literally paid like a million dollars to get on because his campaign, if you recall, had this gimmicky stunt of sorts 
where if, if I recall how this worked correctly, they would mail you like a $20 gift card to donate a dollar. So you would just profit $19. They were literally giving away money in order to hit the number of unique donors that the Republican National Committee had deemed necessary, I believe was 40,000 unique donors in order to qualify for the for the stage. So uh, <laughs> really kind of hilarious and kind of odd, frankly, as a lawyer, that that is not against our federal election laws. Perhaps maybe a future Congress should look into legislation addressing this apparently novel way to get onto a debate stage. But I, I have no idea how the hell Asa Hutchinson got on, onto that debate stage. Every second where the camera was on him was a waste of second. Those were breaths that I have breathed that I will not get back. Those are seconds of my life that I am not going to get back. Asa Hutchinson was the thoroughly mediocre governor of Arkansas. Uh, he, he effectively did Walmart's bidding. Walmart is, Walmart is an extraordinarily powerful corporate lobbyist in Little Rock, Arkansas, as you can imagine. He came out opposed to the Arkansas legislature's efforts to ban chemical castration, kitty hormone therapy for so-called transgender youths. He had this infamous interview with Tucker Carlson in early 2021. Uh, It's really one of my favorite all-time Tucker Carlson on Fox News clips where Tucker is really just absolutely tearing Asa a new one. Uh, for for you know quote unquote coming out as pro choice on the question of chemical castration for kids. I mean that's literally how Tucker opened the interview. I, I have no idea. I, I genuinely have no idea why Asa Hutchinson is in this race. He also was. I, this really should be addressed. I guess he he was wearing a lapel pin. It was. It, it looked to me like it was a U.S. and Israel two country lapel pin. Now I have to say as. A Jew and a Zionist who is engaged and soon to be married to an Israeli woman, I find that really, really weird. Uh, like, Asa, like, you're running to be president of the United States, okay? You're not running to be president of any foreign country. If, if you happen to feel strongly about that relationship, as I do as well, that's great. That's totally fine. Wait for it to come up in conversation. But for the modicum of time that the cameras are fixated on you— to, to give off that vibe, I, 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 it was just weird. I, I, I've never seen a presidential candidate do that in, in a forum like that. I have no idea what he was thinking, whether he was trying to make an appeal to pro-Israel evangelicals or Jews or Jewish donors. I, I have no idea. Um, but that was really just really weird. And again, I say that as someone who is more Zionist than anyone and quite literally marrying an Israeli woman. Okay, so that brings us back to Vivek Ramaswamy, who I have kind of avoided talking about and who I will say a word about now. So Vivek was situated at the front of the debate stage with Ron DeSantis because he has catapulted in much recent polling to being uh, the number three guy, not in all polling, but I guess in the polling average, or however, Ron McDaniel and the RNC decided to do this, I guess that he was the number three guy after Trump and Ron DeSantis. And Vivek took a lot of incoming fire. In fact, he took a lot of the incoming fire that I had presumed would go in Ron DeSantis's direction. He took incoming fire from Mike Pence, Chris Christie, and Nikki Haley. Those are really the, the three exchanges that I most remember. I happen to like a lot of Chris Christie's jabs at Vivek about uh, chat GPT, 
because I feel the same way about Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, Vivek Ramaswamy is very well-spoken. In fact, according to a number of kind of post-debate polls that I have seen, Drudge Report and some others, many seem to think that he quote-unquote won the debate. Certainly many of kind of the closest, you know, to Trump world, the biggest kind of MAGA, Mar-a-Lago people have all been saying, oh, Vivek won, Vivek did this. They've been boosting Vivek Ramaswamy for a long time. You know, I saw Charlie Kirk tweeting a lot of positive things about Vivek Ramaswamy during the course of the debate last night. Look, there were some things that Vivek said during this debate, maybe more than some. There are a number of things that I, I, I think are, are just accurate. I fully agree with them. I, I thought his stance on Russia, Ukraine is 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 accurate. I, I've agreed with that for a very long time. His you know his forthrightness on calling out the climate change agenda and that the climate change hysteria policies, the fact that they're doing way more harm to working middle class Americans than you know hydrocarbon extraction itself does. He, he he's totally correct on all of that. The problem with Vivek Ramaswamy as I have been saying for months and months now, is that you cannot believe a damn word the man says. This is someone who just this week, it came out, there was an ABC News article that came out. Apparently, before Vivek launched his campaign, he had a, a, a close phone call of close confidants of, of, of you know, his, his, his inner circle. And he tells them that he's going to launch his campaign for president, which caught most of them apparently by surprise. And the leak to ABC News from someone on this phone call was that he said that he wanted to get in essentially for the reason of blocking Ron DeSantis. You know, they run on some of the some similar kind of anti-woke issues. Vivek wrote a book, Woke Inc. And this sh should have been screamingly obvious for anyone paying a modicum of attention all along. It was Vivek Ramaswamy who was there with a bullhorn standing next to Laura Loomer outside the federal courthouse in Miami, Florida, the day that Trump was arraigned there, wearing a T-shirt that said truth, which I think his campaign folks then tried to say was some new slogan the campaign was trotting out, but it looked a heck of a lot like an advertisement of sorts for Trump's social media network, Truth Social. More, more generally, Vivek has never, ever missed an opportunity to butter Donald Trump's ego every which way from Sunday. He has been emphatic, emphatic, that one of his first actions as president will be to pardon Trump of all wrongdoing, at least when it pertains to federal crimes. You obviously can't do that for state crimes if you're president. Notwithstanding the fact that we haven't even seen what happens at trial yet. Who knows what could happen? Who knows what witnesses will flip? Who knows what evidence will be presented? We have no idea. And yet Vivek has been dramatically outspoken about that. He gives the president a pass on virtually everything. And there is nothing, nothing that Ron DeSantis does that escapes his intense and duplicitous ire. Vivek Ramaswamy, also earlier this week, it turns out, Fox News reported, it's been public for years that Vivek Ramaswamy is a former George Soros fellow. He received money from the George some Soros Foundation. And it was around the time that he was in law school at Yale. Now, Vivek has said that he took that money to pay for his law school tuition, but Fox News reporting earlier this week shows 
that Vivek was already a millionaire by the time that he matriculated at Yale Law School. He didn't need that Soros money. He took it anyway. Yet another article earlier this week from National Review showed that right before he announced for president, Vivek Ramaswamy paid a Wikipedia editor to delete references in his Wikipedia page from the fact that he had considered the guy who created the mRNA vaccine a mentor. I believe also he had paid that same Wikipedia editor to actually delete the fact that he was Hindu. That has been subsequently re-added, and he's actually publicly talked about it, which I give him credit for. You obviously should never hide your religion. I think that's terrible. You should be who you are. The fact that he felt like even for a moment that he had to hide it is appalling. This is someone, Vek Ramaswamy, who was praising George Soros on Twitter for his pro-China, pro-lockdown stuff as recently as 2021, if I recall the Twitter timestamp. Vivek is someone who was co-investing with Chinese Communist Party-backed equity funds as recently as 2019 or so. There are literal photos and videos of him in Shanghai at investors' conferences. This is someone now calling himself a China hawk. Are you kidding me? Someone who came out of absolutely nowhere a few years ago and is now all over the conservative media circuit, in particular the Rupert Murdoch News Corp organizations, Fox News, New York Post, Wall Street Journal. Someone who clearly has learned the talking points. But going back to that ABC News article from earlier this week, the other key takeaway from that article was that Vivek Ramaswamy has apparently always wanted nothing more than to be famous. He desires fame for himself more than anything else. Which makes sense because based on Everything that I have ever learned about the man, including my own personal and professional dealings with him, I believe sincerely that he is the biggest egomaniac that I have ever met in my entire life. And working in this field, I've met a lot of people with very large egos. Vivek, I genuinely think, believes that he is some sort of quasi-messianic figure who should be above criticism, above the fray. And ultimately, that is what he is in this for. He is not running to be president of the United States. At best, at best, he is running to be Trump's vice president, God help us, or treasury secretary or Fed chair or something along those lines. At worst, he is literally just running for clicks, book sales, royalties, anything that will boost his bottom line. God knows that he has been complicit, actually, in bankrupting numerous pharmaceutical companies in the past, including the company Royvant that he helped start. They promised, if I recall, it was either Royvant or, an, or another scam that he was involved in. They promised they had the cure to an Alzheimer's. They, they, they had the drug. That went belly up. Everything that Vivek has gotten involved in has subsequently gone belly up shortly after he left. I just think that his new audience that he's trying to scam is the American people and the Republican voter base in particular. The guy is a swindler who should not be taken even remotely seriously. I was happy to see numerous candidates take some swings at him. He desperately needs to be taken down more than a few notches. My only disappointment of the evening in that respect was that Ron DeSantis himself did not get into the fray with Vivek. I would have liked nothing more, frankly, than to see Ron DeSantis absolutely take it to Vivek perhaps at a future time. 
if I had to guess, I think it was the ProDesantis Super PAC never backed down their leaked memo, which had that line, Sledgehammer Ramaswamy. I think the, the leak of that memo, if I had to guess, probably dissuaded DeSantis from going there. In any event, I'm sure that there will be some DeSantis Ramaswamy fireworks in the not-so-distant future. So that takes us to the million-dollar question here, which is going back to Trump, Tucker Carlson, all that. The million-dollar question is, does any of this matter? Does any of this matter whatsoever? And I would say that it is, it is unclear at best whether this matters, if we're just being candid here, because Trump still obviously does have an overwhelming lead in the polls. Now, that lead is smaller when you get into some of the early states. Iowa, in particular, appears to be a heck of a lot tighter than the national horse race numbers would suggest. Some of these so-called kingmakers in Iowa, folks like my buddy Steve Dace, the podcast host, folks like Bob Vanderplatz, the evangelical leader, some folks like that are either Trump skeptical or full-on pro-DeSantis. The governor there, Kim Reynolds, who's wildly popular, she hasn't endorsed, she probably will not endorse, but she is commonly and accurately seen as favoring DeSantis. Trump has even taken some shots at her. So we'll see what happens in Iowa, and we'll see what happens, obviously, with Trump's criminal indictments as well. This is no joke. These criminal indictments here are no joke whatsoever. You know, there's a lot of people who look at Trump's situation and they assume because of the nature of the political persecution of this sprawling multi-state jihad, this lawfare campaign against him, they assume that he's just going to get off scot-free. Trump obviously makes it all too easy for his opponents, ignoring the grand jury subpoena in Mar-a-Lago, the infamous phone call of Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, but the political persecution of these indictments is still clear to me. But anyway, a lot of people look at that and they assume that he'll just, he'll just get off scot-free. That's not how it works. Different prosecutors, different courtrooms, different jurors, different charges, different criminal procedure rules. There, there is a non-zero chance that Donald Trump could be in handcuffs and potentially even in prison sometime next year. Republican voters discount that possibility at their peril. So that above all, if you want to be really kind of cynical about it, that above all, at a bare minimum, is why last night's debate and future debates do matter. Now, did anyone stand out and truly dominate? I don't think so. I had hoped that Ron DeSantis would dominate more. I cannot say that he did. Again, he was good. He was the closest thing to, quote-unquote, winning the debate of any of the candidates. He had some very good answers. He did no damage to himself, really. But he didn't dominate. So we're going to have to see a lot more from these other candidates very quickly if we want to see some of those national polls tied in. Because for now, for, for better or for worse, and your mileage may vary on that, of course, it really continues to be Donald Trump's race to lose. But Ron DeSantis did not do himself any damage there. He has given himself some, some in the way of clips 
for people to replay and talking points on the campaign trail and things like that. But that is our take on the first Republican presidential primary debate of August 23rd. 2023. Many more, of course, coming up. I believe the next one will be next month out at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, if I'm not mistaken. So look forward to that as well. And I really hope that President Trump attends that one, although I believe he has already intimated that he will not, but he really, really should. It would make for far better television. And frankly, he just owes it to the Republican voters as well.